Welcome to another inspiring message from Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. Well, good morning, Milestone, and welcome to those who are watching in McKinney and watching online. It's so great to be here. I love your pastor. But be, let's be honest. We know the real secret behind Milestone. Brandy Little. Come on. It's Jesus and then Brandy Little. I was here the opening day of, of service, and uh, it has been the joy of our Savior's church and Michelle and I, my, my beautiful wife of 36 years, to be one of the two churches, Church of the King, and our church were the first two churches to stand and support Milestone until Pastor Brandy and Jeff were able to support themselves here. So it was the greatest investment our Savior's Church has ever, ever made. It is. And uh, this morning, about 8,000 people will gather at our four campuses in Acadiana and Lafayette area. But I want to tell you, so many people have been touched here, and it's been such an amazing investment to see what God has done inside of you. And I'm a pastor, so I know what it's like when you get away, and pastor's away, and he's in Israel, and let's pray he doesn't try to walk on water. I know he's lost a lot of weight and got in shape since I've met him, but <laughs> Let, let's pray for them that God renews and refreshes them, and let's pray a hedge of protection over them. That's one of the most dangerous places in the world right there in the Middle East. So let's pray for your pastors. Father, we thank you for Pastor Jeff and Brandy. And we unite together from McKinney and those online and all across the Milestone family. And we unite together praying for Pastor Jeff. Thank you for the gift of God that he is, he and Brandy, to this church and to this community. We pray a hedge of protection around them and all that are on their team that you would surround them, that the angels of the Lord would cover and keep them. In Jesus' name, and everybody that loves your pastor said, Amen. Amen. How many of you here, perchance, have ever heard me before? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, the rest of you, you're in for a blessing. <laughs> when I was nine years old, I woke up in the Mexican ghetto of Houston, and everyone in my family was gone, except my dad and I. There were six children, and so that meant five of them were gone. I looked over at my dad. I said, Dad, dad where, where is everybody? He said, well, your mom and I are getting a divorce, and you're going to live with me. I was kind of close to my dad, so that seemed to be okay. A few nights later, he came in drunk, and he drugged me in the back of his 67 Fastback Mustang, and he said, come on, boy, we're going to go and find your mother. And we began to drive through the barrio, the Mexican ghetto area of Houston, to the ship channel, and finally, we stopped outside of a bar. About 45 minutes later, my mother came walking out of this bar with another man, and my father woke me up, and he drug me across the street, and I'll never forget the events that happened next. He shoved me into my mother's face, and he said, look at your mother. She's cheap, and she's used, and she's no good. And then he pulled out a knife, and he stabbed the back tire of the car that, that, that my mom and this man jumped in, and we began to ram them down the road. And that day... Looking back on it now, I can see clearly. I didn't know it at the moment. But I made a conscious decision that day, at nine years old, that I would never let anyone hurt me that much again. That I'd never let anybody that close again. In my heart, 
like many of you who've experienced pain from your parents, experiencing the unthinkable, it became hard and bitter and resentful. I know that many of you might have gone through freedom this weekend. How many of you went through freedom this weekend? Hey, give them a big hand. Let's give them a big hand. Because freedom helps you deal with hurts, habits, and hangups of your past. There was no freedom back in that day for me. And my heart became filled with bitterness and resentment. And when you're filled with bitterness and resentment, it is an engraved invitation to the enemy. And so I turned to the only place that you could find peace when you hold on to bitterness and resentment, and that's synthetic peace. So I began to be involved in drugs and gangs and, and all the whole rest that goes along with that. By the time I was 14 years old, I was no longer a kid. I was just a small person. My dad was on his way to being married five times. Each woman he married after my mother had been married three times. My mom was being married two times. My dad had been married seven times. In other words, I have more relatives than the late Alex Haley's in Roots. I don't have a family tree. I got a family bush. I mean, I am related to everybody in the world. And if you're white, don't laugh. Most of my stepmothers were. I might be related to you. But in the midst of all of this pain and chaos going on in my life, I wondered what would happen in my life. I have four sisters that got pregnant 13, 14, and 15. My older brother was a drug dealer, and they were the heroes of my life. But how many of you know that even though we might not see in our darkest moments God, God always still sees us. And a miracle was about to happen in my life. A white pastor working at a small church in the body of Houston where everybody could afford to move had moved out, had gone in to work at a church there. And he was driving by our school, Jackson Junior High School in the body of Houston, and we were in the middle of integration. How many of you remember integration? Times were very similar to, they are, to what they are today. And at that time, they were going to integrate and take students from high-class white schools to low-class black schools to get an equal education. Well, at that time, the Supreme Court decided that what would happen is when integration took place, they would just bust up from the black schools to, to the white schools or vice versa. The only problem was at that time, Mexicans were not considered to be Mexicans. They were considered to be white because the Supreme Court said whoever wasn't black was white. Matter of fact, later on, I would find out that I was a Mexican-American. Then not long after that, I was found out I was a Chicano. And not long after that, I would find out that I was a Latino. And recently, I found out that I'm Hispanic. So pray for me while I find myself. <laughs> so they ended up busting kids from the black ghetto to the Mexican ghetto. And my junior high school in the body of Houston, 2,000 students became 60% Mexican, 39% black, and 1% white. And everybody wanted power. The brothers were saying, we want black power. The Mexicans were saying, we want Chicano power. And the whites were saying, we want out, where's the door? <laughs> and in the middle of this, a man like your pastor, who believed God could do anything, drove by our school, and he said, God, I want you to give me that school. And he heard that still small voice. You, you know that still small voice. That one that writes something on a blank sheet in your heart when you know nothing else is there. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I've given you the school, go and tell the principal. 
So in obedience to that voice, he got out of his car. He went and he knocked on the principal's door. The principal came to the door. He said, hello, sir. I know you don't know me. My name is Pastor Keith. I work at a small church here down the road. And I've been praying for your school. I know that you're having problems. And I want to come and speak to your students because God told me he was going to give me this school. Well, the principal wasn't very impressed. And he looked at him. He said, sir, we have open use of drugs, open solicitation of prostitution, full-time narcotics officers, and I've been beat up three times this year by students. What can you do for our school? And the pastor looked at him and said, nothing, but Jesus can. One week later, they allowed them to come into our school and bring in a band, and then he would speak. I came walking in the back doors that morning. I'd gone through my normal eighth grade morning ritual. I smoked weed before school. Come on, don't act like you don't know who Cheech and Chong are. <laughs> and so I, I came walking into school, hair down to here with my little homies, and, and this guy's standing up front talking about Jesus, and a band's playing, and I don't really remember much of anything that happened. But that night, about five o'clock, there was a good-looking Mexican girl named Dolores that lived across the street from me, and she came and she knocked on my door, and she said, hey, Jacob. The bandit was there. They're going to be back there tonight. You want to go with me? And I said, would you kiss me if I go? And she said, yes. Now, girls, I don't say that's a place to wait, an evangelism tool. Okay? And, and, and so I, I, I said, if you'll kiss me, I'll go. And so I went with that holy motive. And when we got there that night, all of, she went up, sat up. The place was full. There was almost 1,000 students there. People were there. I sat back in the back with all of my friends doing what we normally do, distracted, cutting up. At the end of the meeting, they said, if you want to give your life to Christ, come forward. And almost the entire place came forward. They took and they began to break the students down into classrooms. And they began to send counselors in from a band and from the church group that was there. And I didn't know what any of that was. I didn't go with any of them, but I got tired of waiting for Dolores. And after about 15 minutes of waiting for my kiss, I walked into the door where she was, knocked on the door, opened up the door, and there was an African-American counselor that she was talking to. And I said, hey, Dolores, it's time for us to go, and I want my kiss. And the African-American counselor looked at me, and he said, did, did, did you want to talk to me? Well, I didn't want to talk to him, but, but let me tell you something. I was respectful of God. I... I there may be a black or Mexican atheist. I've just never met them because they never had the courage to go home and tell their mama and grandmother or they would see Jesus face to face. I mean, come on, we even name our kids Jesus. When's the last time you met a white guy in Keller named Jesus? And so I, I, I was respectful, so I, I, just, I just said, yeah, but we really gotta go. And Dolores said, no, we don't. And I just sat down and I went, man. And he began to tell me an amazing story. It didn't matter if your mama was a barmaid. If your sister got pregnant at 13, 14, 15, if your daddy had been married five times, there was a God that loved you and had a plan and a purpose for your life and he didn't care who you were. He wanted you even if you didn't want him. And then he looked at me and he said, do you want that? And I went, 
do I want that? That's all I've wanted all of my life. That's all I've wanted all of my life. And I prayed with him. And that day, I was born again. That day, the little Mexican kid who'd seen his mom and dad do the unthinkable, who'd experienced the unthinkable in his lifetime, he got up from that chair. And when I got up, I was brand new. I felt clean, washed. That day I've done great on some days and I've struggled on others, but that was my spiritual birthday. I was born again that day and I would never, ever, ever, ever be the same. I went home and told my dad and my stepmom and they got so excited they kicked me out of the house. So at 14 and a half I was on my own, but that's okay. That's where I felt I was most of the time. And so I, I called my mom. I said, Mom, Dad's kicked me out of the house. Could I move in with you? And she said, yes. And so I, I, I got to the address of where she gave me to go to. And when I walked in, it was a yellow building with red and black letters on the outside. And it said the Paras Lounge on 7620 Canal in Houston. And I walked in. I looked at my mother. She came walking out with hot pants and go-go boots on. For those of you who remember those days, how many of you remember those days? How many of you wore them? Don't raise your hand. You'll scar people. And, and I, I, I looked at her. I said, Mama, what is this? And she said, Son, if you're going to live with me, this is home. And I remember walking out the doorway at lounge and looking up into the sky going, God, what in the world are you doing? Just a few months ago, I was trying to sneak in a place like this to get a drink. Now you're trying to move me into one. For the next three and a half years, I worked and served beer in my mom's lounge every day when I came home from school, but that's where I began to preach the gospel. When my mother had centerfold pictures up on the middle of the wall, I'd pull them down and put up scriptures, repent, no drunks will enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> there, God's family became my family. The pastor who led me to Christ, that led that group, he would come and he would pick me up at my mama's bar. People from the church would come and they'd pull up and they'd lower the window about this big and go, is Jacob here? But true. I remember when I went to share my testimony for the first time, the church bus came and pulled up. My pastor was going to let me share my testimony. He promised me if I got a haircut, I could share my testimony. So I went to the fire cell. Now, some of you don't know what the fire cell is. Let me tell you what the fire cell is. The fire cell is in the hood, and it's where good clothes at good stores, like Foley's and places like that, where like they had a fire, and so all the clothes smell like smoke. And so you can buy the same clothes, but they're about 10%. And so you take them and you wash them. And so I went to the fire cell, and I bought a pair of blue slacks and a white shirt. And I got my hair cut from right here to right here. And the church bus came and it pulled up and I was so excited to go on that bus for the first time. I'd been a Christian for two months and I was gonna share my testimony before my pastor spoke at a church. And my uncle came running out as soon as I got on the, the bus holding up a beer going, Jacob, you forgot something. <laughs> I love to say that Jesus saved my soul, but the church of Jesus saved my life. There, the older ladies became my grandmothers. There, the men became fathers to me. 
You see, when people come walking in these doors, you might think they want just to hear some neat music and a great sermon. But the truth is, most people that come walking in these doors come walking in looking for what I was looking for. Family. Family. Someone to show you how to do life and succeed. Someone that can help you not become like your mom and dad. This church is built on spiritual family. And when you come walking in the doors of Milestone Church, you might not realize what that warmth is. You might not realize what the, the being embraced by others is. It's what we call spiritual family. As a matter of fact, we don't believe you join the church. We believe God joins you. That when you walk in, you look and go, this is my family. So today, I want to talk to you about one of the great principles of this book, of how to have that kind of family. Let me begin by sharing with you an important principle that's woven all throughout this book, and it's this. The quality of your life is determined by your relationships. Say that with me. The quality of your life is determined by your relationship with God, your relationship with your mate. If you're single, your relationship with your family, your relationship with your friends. It doesn't matter what you have. People don't go and visit their money in the bank. The quality of your life is determined by the quality of your relationships. And I've worked with a lot of affluent people over the last many years, being the chaplain of the New Orleans Saints and being the pastor for the LSU football coach and working with pro athletes for many, many, many years. I've worked with a lot of wealthy people and most people that had wealth were miserable because they assumed that if you had wealth, it would give you relationships. The quality of your life is determined by your relationships. And if that's true, then the quality of your life is determined by how you resolve conflict in relationships. How many of you got family? How many of you have relatives you can't introduce, you have to explain? <laughs> Don't let Uncle Fred hug you. <laughs> okay, Aunt Nene's got a mustache. Don't stare at it. <laughs> I mean, everybody's got that aunt, that uncle, that cousin, or that relative. You know, Jesus said all things are possible, but do you know there was one thing Jesus said was impossible? Jesus said all things are possible, but in Luke 17, 1, he said there is something that is impossible. Listen to what he said in Luke 17, 1. He said to his disciples, it is what? Impossible that no should come to you. You know what that means? That means if you know people, people hurt. That means if you know people, you're going to be offended. As a matter of fact, people come into church like Milestone all the time, and they go, hey, you know, we're, we're coming from another church, and uh, we were there and everything, and, and we got hurt. And I just hope nobody will hurt us here. As long as there's people, there's potential for hurt. All people hurt. All people hurt. I don't know about the paper here, but in Lafayette, Louisiana, where I live, I read the paper every day. 
Matter of fact, when I'm out of town, I'll get home and all the papers will be stacked up. And the first two areas I look is number one after the front page, I look at the obituary to see if I'm still alive. When my picture's not there, it's a good day. Come on, everybody over 50. Then I look for people in our church or people related to somebody in our church where we can send flowers or, or, or give a phone call. And then the third area I look at is the arrest columns. In our paper, they put who was arrested, a picture of them, and what they were arrested for. I guess if you did that in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that'd be the whole paper, huh? <laughs> and so I, I looked at that, and, and I checked to see people's records. I, I want to know, is it somebody in our church? Is it somebody related to somebody in our church? Should I send someone to go visit someone? Should I make a phone call? I'm a pastor. That's what I do. But what's interesting is those records stay with you. You, you. you don't forget things like that. All of us know people that have been arrested or imprisoned or, or the police were called out. And even as I say that, those people are coming to your mind right now. I was seated a couple of years ago and, and watching one of my sons get married, watching one of my spiritual sons perform their ceremony. And I'm just a, a daddy on the front row with my beautiful wife, and we're just watching, and I'm just taking all of this in. And Pastor Dwight looks at my son, Christian, who's a pastor, and now he, he looks at him and he says, Christian, the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrong. Well, would you say that with me? Love keeps no record of wrong. As a matter of fact, the Amplified Version says it like this. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of evil done to it. It pays no attention. Pays no attention. You see, when you hold on to a record, you have to pay it. It requires something. It doesn't require money. It requires attention. It, it pays no attention. A few days later, I was, I was thinking about the wedding ceremony. I was actually recovering, thinking about how much it cost us. Come on, parents. And then I was thinking about how tired I was. And then I was thinking about the honeymoon and how much we paid for that. And as I was thinking about it, up in the morning in prayer, my devotions I remembered that phrase, love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. And all of a sudden, I heard that still small voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit say to me, Jacob, you're a record keeper. And I stopped just like you. And I re responded back, Hold it, I, I, God, I've forgiven everyone. He said, you have, but you've not expunged their record. You see, when you expunge someone's record, it's like you remove it as though it never, ever happened before. And here's an incredible revelation that occurred to me. There's not a person who doesn't have a record, both good and bad, of what they've done. Everyone here has a record. Here's the second thing I realized. The devil is a record keeper. 
He's a record keeper. And I knew I didn't want to be like him. As a matter of fact, Revelations 12.10 says, Then I heard a strong voice out of heaven saying, Salvation and power are established in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and what? Sisters was thrown out who accused them day and night before God. Do you know that in this entire Bible, the devil only speaks three times? He only speaks three times. The first time he speaks in the garden and he accuses God to man. He comes to Eve and says, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree. God doesn't want you to be, God doesn't want you to have the best. He accuses God to man. The second time in the book of Job, there in the book of Job, he accuses Job to God. God, look how you bless Job. If you took your hand off of him, if you stopped blessing him, he would curse you to your face. And the third time in the wilderness where Jesus was fasting and praying for 40 days, he accuses God to the Son of God. Come on, if you really got turn this into bread, this rock, if you really got here, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. Your father's making you do it the hard way. So listen to me. If the devil would accuse you to others, would accuse God to you, and would accuse you to one another, his title, one of his titles is the accuser. The devil is a record keeper. He's a record keeper. Corinthians 13, 7 says that either we can listen to the advocate or to the accuser. Here's what the advocate Jesus says in Corinthians 13. Paul writes of it. He says, love bears up under what? Anything and everything that comes. It is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Love only holds on to one record. It's the best. You ever been to a funeral where people stood up and eulogized the person that died? One lady was sitting up on the front row. Her husband was no good. He was worthless. He ran with criminals. He lived a terrible life, and she bore with it through the entire thing. People got up and began to eulogize this man. He was a good man. He was a good husband. He was a good father. He cared for others. The mother reached over and tapped her 12-year-old son and said, go up and look in that casket and see if that's your daddy. But, but we've all known someone who had a grown child. Maybe they were getting married or maybe they got a job promotion. And you know the parent. And they'll look at you and go, I tell you, that Johnny never gave me one day's trouble his whole life. And you're going, Johnny the drug addict? Johnny the hard-headed, stubborn tormentor? Because in moments like that, you forget the other records. You forget the other records. Here's number three. Because here's what I know. I know that one of the great deterrents to letting go of what people do to you that hurt you is, Pastor, if I let them go, they might hurt me again. You see, holding on to this keeps them at a distance, Pastor, where, where, where they can't hurt me again. I don't want to be hurt again because you know what they say. If you do me wrong once, 
shame on you. If you do me wrong twice, shame on me. But I want to share something with you that's really important. This is number three. All people are going to hurt you. You must just decide what relationships are worth suffering for. I hear people tell me all the time, I don't want to be hurt anymore. Then can I share something with you? Don't get married. <laughs> it's not they intentionally hurt you. You said, I don't want to get hurt anymore. Then for heaven's sakes, don't have kids. And all the parents said, because they give you scars here, lady, when you give birth to them. And men and women get scars here and here until they arrive at their spiritual destiny. All people are going to hurt you. And the only thing worse that hurts than rather than having people hurt you is having no one in your life and living in the pain of isolation. Living in the pain of isolation. You know what we love so much? about Jesus. Everyone's greatest fear in this room is that if someone knew the worst about you, they wouldn't love you. You know what's so amazing about Jesus? He's the only one that knows everything about me and he's still the one that loves me the most. And the one that loves you the most. Number four. Jesus suffered to forgive us and he still keeps no record of wrong. He throws our sin into a sea of forgetfulness never to be remembered again. H have you ever gone to the store and forgot what you were there for? Isn't it amazing how you can forget what your wife sent you for, or what you went for, but you can't forget what happened to you when you were nine years old? And you remember it in great detail. Do, do you know why? Because when something happens to you that's traumatic, it goes into a part of your memory and it becomes part of what they call psychologists the episodic event. It actually comes and it releases chemicals in the back of your brain that makes that stay with you for a lifetime. When I share with you the story about my father taking me and showing my mother, I remember it. I'm 59 years old and I remember it like it happened last night. See, many of us struggle in areas of our life to release something, to release the record of something because it's stored there in an episodic part. That's why we have freedom. That's why they're incredible Christian counselors. But that's also why it takes the same God who breathed into the dust of the earth and made man a living soul to come to the dirt in your life and to breathe on you in moments and heal you where only Jesus can. Where only Jesus can. The first words announcing the angel, announcing Jesus' arrival to Joseph was this. In Matthew 1, 21, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. From them. He will pull them from, from your sins. We all love communion. I live in a Catholic area. It's the highest populated Catholic area in the United States, Lafayette, Louisiana. Ten years ago, there were more people on Catholic church rolls than actual inhabitants of the city. 
That's true. That's why the name of our church is Our Savior's Church. Because I know you're all going, why is it Our Savior's Church? Why is it Our Savior's Church? When I bless people at the end, half of my congregation does this. <laughs> true story. Do you know, we love communion. Matter of fact, one of the things we could learn from other churches is how sacred communion is to them. But do you know why we love communion? How many love communion? You know why you love it? Because it wasn't your son that suffered and died whose blood it represents to pay for your sin. It was his. It was his. You see, when we don't release those records and we hold on, when we don't allow God to divinely come in and meet us to expunge those records from our mind, can that happen? You better believe it can. Have you ever met a couple that, that, that was arguing and they came and one of them said, let me tell you what my husband did. And let me tell you, I think he ran around on me. And, I don't. and two weeks later, you see them through the mall and they're holding hands and kissing and you're going, what happened? A record got expunged. That's what happened. What separated them no longer separates them. I want to close with this last simple story because it's so powerful. There's a pastor I know from a small town in Texas who pastored the same church for over 50 years. As a matter of fact, he died in November. This past November, he went home to be with the Lord. There's one red light in Woodville, Texas, where he is. 35 years into his pastorate, his children now almost young adults. There was a large family in the church. Church was about 300 people in a city of 1,000. That's a mega church. And one of the family members said, listen, pastor, if you cross me and you don't get this right and do what we want you to do, I'll take my family and we'll pull out. And he was related to about 100 people in the church. Well, the pastor didn't acquiesce to what he wanted. And so the man... One Sunday, left and went to the other side of the one red light in town, found a building, took 100 people and started the church. For the next five years, the denomination they were a part of blessed this church of 100 people to go under their denomination. So you have the original church here and the now new denominational church of the same denomination here, both on the same street on different sides of the red light. R.C. Tillery, who I've preached for since I was a teenager, saw his children turn their heart away from the Lord. His children looked at him and said, Daddy, if that's what Christians are like, the people that you've married, buried their relatives, dedicated their children, baptized them when they were born again, if that's what they're going to do, I don't want a part of any of that. And for five years, his children's heart was hardened because of the unforgiveness towards those people. R.C. lived about five miles out of town, and he has a little barn. He called his prayer barn. He walked out of his prayer barn. This is now five years after the event, and he was walking into the house, and he looked at his beautiful wife, Opal, and said, Opal, let me ask you a question. What would you do if all those people who left the church five years ago and turned our children's heart away from the Lord, what would you do if they all came back next week? She said, well, R.C., 
I guess I just had to forgive them. She said, then you better forgive them because I was praying and the Holy Spirit told me they're all coming back next week. And next week, all 100 of them were back in that church. His children are now thriving and successful. And God has blessed them in many, many ways. But it couldn't happen until they let go. Here's point number five. If he has removed our record, then we must remove others' records from our heart. Mark eleven twenty five says this, and when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. Forgive him and let it, let it what? Let it, leave it, let it go in order that your father who is in heaven may also forgive your failings, shortcomings, and let them. But if you do not forgive, Neither will your heavenly Father forgive your fallings and shortcomings. Look right here. What is this passage telling us? That if I don't release the records of others, then I become a barrier to God releasing mine. Would you bow your head with me? Are you a record keeper like I was? Has that same voice, still small voice, spoken to you? Right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you all across this room, you hear you say, Pastor, I want to acknowledge today I've been a record keeper. If that's you, would you raise your hand all across this room? Come on, all across this room. All across this room, God's going to help you by the Holy Spirit expunge these things today. Raise it up high. God can't forgive sin that you won't acknowledge. You can put your hands down. I want you to put both of your hands on your lap with your palms open, and I want you to pray this out loud with me. I want everybody in this room to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, come on, loud, in the name of Jesus, I acknowledge I've been a record keeper. Forgive me. Today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and the next day, by faith, I choose to let it go. Every time it tries to come back, by faith, I'll let it go. Today, breathe on me that those records might be expunged. Now, Father, I ask you in the Holy Spirit to come down and to breathe, breathe, breathe now, Holy Spirit, on so many that are here. Breathe on them. And now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. The answer to this question determines where you spend eternity. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they would not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, until you're born again, 
you don't know that if you died, the next face you see would be the face of Jesus. And if you lived, you don't know God's plan and purpose is going to be revealed through your life till you're born again. The week before Easter, 1971, when I prayed with that African-American counselor, that day I was born again. It was my spiritual birthday. You say, well, pastor, I've been christened and baptized. Is that enough? That's a great start. That's a great start. But Jesus said you had to be born again. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're hearing you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. I want today to be my spiritual birthday. I want today to be the day that I'm born again. I'm the only one that's looking every head bowed every eye closed. We're not going to embarrass you. We're going to pray for you right where you are. If that's you, on the count of three, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me today. I don't want to leave here without having a spiritual birthday. I don't want to leave here without being born again. One, two, three. Lift it high now all across this building. Yes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Keep it high. Nine. High. 10, 11, 12. High. 13. I see it back in the back. 14. Yes. 15, 16, 17. Now put your hands down. Last 10 seconds, Pastor. I didn't raise my hand with these 17, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest, Pastor. This is what I need. I know it. If you didn't raise your hand, but you should have, raise it up high and wave it at me right now. If you already raised it once, don't wave it, raise it again. But wave it at me right now so I can see you. I'm asking this last time for you. 17, wave it. 18, 19. All right. Now, church, let's pray out loud with all of those who raised their hand to be born again. Let's join them in this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe it on the cross. You took my guilt my sin and my shame and you died for it I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go and you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven purpose on earth and a relationship with your father today Lord Jesus I turn away from sin to be born again and I receive you as my Lord and Savior in Jesus name Thanks for listening to this message from Milestone Church. We hope it's been an encouragement for you today. We invite you to listen to other messages on this podcast or discover who we are by visiting our website at milestonechurch.com. 